Proverbs chapter 30, beginning in verse 24. There be four things which are little upon the earth, but they are exceeding wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth all of them by bands. The spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. The attitude of so many saved people, believers in this world today is this, size equals success. It is that bigger is better attitude. There are some that feel, the world mainly, but some who are saved feel that size and wealth equate to God's blessings. That was a Jewish attitude, in fact. The Jews thought if you were wealthy, you were godly. That God was blessing you. If you didn't have money, (laughs) you were ungodly, and God was not blessing you. But that's not always the case, right? Just because you have size or money does not necessarily mean that you're being godly. The devil will give the world what it wants in order to draw the world to him. Remember what the Lord said to the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. He said, I know thy works and thy tribulation and poverty. And then in parentheses he says, but thou art rich. Some have referred to Smyrna as the poor, rich church. And then to the rich church in Revelation chapter 3, to the church that said, we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, what did the Lord say? You don't even know that you're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. So size does not always indicate godliness. Size does not always indicate God's blessing. And then the other thing that many people today believe, that if you are small, you can't do much for the Lord. I've dealt with people who had that attitude. In fact, I've shared with you, there was a man that was a member of a church down the road from the church I pastored. It was another Baptist church. And they were small in number. Our church was small in number. And his attitude was, we're just trying to hang on till Jesus comes. He'd given up. The church had given up. They were just saying, we're just going to meet till we all die or till the Lord comes back. I don't even know if that church is in existence today. Folks, there are some that would look at this church and they'd say, you're not very big. You don't have a lot of numbers, a lot of people. What can you do in the world? And if we listen to that too much, you know what? We might adopt that attitude. Even some who are members. Now, this is where I'm going to get accused of sour grapes, all right? Even some who are members of our sister churches, when they moved to this town, they wouldn't even consider visiting here because we're small in number. Okay? We've seen that happen. We know that happens. Listen, they don't know what they're missing, all right? They'd rather visit the larger church because the larger church has more to offer for me and my family. And sadly, that seems to be the attitude of so many church members today. I'm going to state this just for the record. You don't attend a church for what it can do for you. 
you join a church and you attend that church for what you can do for the Lord through that church. A New Testament church is a place of service. It is not a place to be served. Why should size matter? Unless you just want to get lost in a big crowd and not have to do anything. Did you really say that, Brother Jim? Yes, I did. But if a church is one of the Lord's churches, and if a church is preaching and teaching the Word of God in spirit and in truth, why should it matter what the size is if God led you to that church? Amen. The bigger and better attitude is what's hurt so many small churches, especially in our fellowship. We've seen churches of our fellowship actually close their doors. I have known of people who would drive miles from home to attend the bigger church and pass by some of our smaller churches on the way. And then you know what happens when you talk to them? And by the way, those smaller churches are just as spiritual and just as much the Lord's as the one they were going to. And those same people, when those smaller churches close their doors, will ultimately wonder, well, what happened? <laughs> well, I can tell you what happened. They were largely ignored by people. They couldn't get workers. That's why. You know, you get families with young people in. And they move into town. And they say, well, I've, I want to go where there's something for the young people to do. I dealt with some young people one time at a church. And I may have talked to young people in this church the same way. You know, a lot of times other churches provide entertainment for their young people. A church is not a babysitting service. A youth group is not a babysitting service. Yes, I agree that we need to do things with our young people. But here's what I've told young people. Because some were wanting to leave and go to another church that had a youth group. Said, Why not invite your friends in and create your own here? Instead of going somewhere else. But you know what the problem in America is today? We want everything already made for us. We don't want to be used to the Lord to build up a church. We want to go to a church that's already built. We want to be, don't want to be used of the Lord to build up a youth group. We want a youth group that's already built or a senior group that's already built. We don't want to do it ourselves. We don't want to let the Lord do it through us. We just want it already made for us. And what happens many times in smaller churches, you know who stays with them most of the time? Those older folks who are on fixed incomes. Now, I know we all think we're on fixed incomes, okay? But the folks who are on fixed incomes... Social Security or whatever, and they support the church financially, but eventually that goes away. And eventually that church closes her doors. And listen, I'm not going to let preachers off the hook either. I know, I told Joni on the way here, I said, you know one of the great things about being my age and probably pastoring the last church you'll ever pastor? I don't have to worry about making anybody outside of this place happy. Any of my brothers in the ministry, listen, brother, if this offends you, have a talk with the Lord about it, all right? But listen, I've known preachers who would not even consider pastoring a church this size. Maybe they thought they were too big. Maybe they thought they were too important. Maybe they thought they were too good a speaker to waste their time with a smaller church. I heard of a preacher that had that sort of attitude. He was a young man just out of seminary, and he was going to get up and preach one day. And he got up in the pulpit and he got his notes mixed up and he forgot what he was going to say and he fumbled and fretted and you know, just made a mess out of the message. And when he went to sit down, an elderly woman that was sitting right there said, if you had 
gone up the way you came down, you had to come down the way you'd gone up. You had to come down having done a good job instead of going up proud and not doing a good job. And you know, it's possible that some churches our size have trouble getting a pastor or getting a pastor who will stay with them. One of the promises I made to this church 10 years ago when I became your pastor said, I'm not trying to climb any ecclesiastical ladders. I'm at the highest I can be right now, folks. I'm pastoring one of the Lord's churches. There's nothing higher than that. But I believe therein lies the problem for us, not believers in general, but for this church, for Bethel. Because I'm afraid if we're not careful, as I said earlier, we will consider ourselves small and insignificant. That God can't use us in a great way. I pastored one church which was about our size. And God laid it on our hearts to start a mission work. And we did. And there is today in that city a New Testament church, a self-supporting church. Because God blessed our willingness to get involved and to go out and do a mission work. I remember, many of you will, Brother Mike Pornoy. Y'all remember him? Brother Mike's with the Lord now. But he and I were talking one day and he said, here's part of our problem. We have a small church mentality. And we let it rule what we do. You know, again, we're small, we don't have a lot of funds, and we just can't do a whole lot. And he said, we need to get rid of that. And I agree with him. Listen, this is one of the Lord's churches. That makes it important. Amen. That makes this church something. Now, he didn't mean for us to lose the closeness that we have. I like the closeness that we have in this church, but we can be big and close also if God so blesses us that way. But we need to get rid of the attitude that we can't do much as a church because we're not very big. Consider this. God repopulated the earth with eight people. Right? Noah and his family. Correct? Israel went into Egypt as a family of 75 people. They came out of Egypt a nation of 2 million people. Goliath didn't think much of David, did he? But who won that battle? What about Gideon's army? Gideon had an army of 32,000 people and God said, I can't use them. And he knocked that number down to 300. He said, I'll give you victory with those 300. And then Jesus. Jesus started with a few. Peter and Andrew and James and John. Others were added along the way and it's assumed that at some point that church at Jerusalem after the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord and the ascension of him back into heaven and then we get into the book of Acts that that church numbered as many as 10,000 people and it started with Jesus and four disciples. See, size doesn't matter when God is involved. God can take one or two. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. God can take just a few and God can do marvelous things with just a few folks who are willing, now here's the key, who are willing to let God use them to his honor and to his glory. We need to be reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 beginning in verse 26 for you see your call. By the way, I'm I'm going to tell you before I read this, I'm thankful for the letter M. You think about that as I read this. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. I'm glad he didn't say not any, right? 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Why didn't God defeat the enemy with 32,000 in Gideon's army? Because then Israel might say, look what we've done. But when God takes 300 and he defeats the enemy with 300 and God had told them how to do it through Gideon, they can say, look what God has done. I don't know if some of you read this, some of you may not have. And I, this is, I don't know if this even applies to this right here, but I'm going to tell you how wonderful God is. We were at the service for Sister Joy's sister yesterday and we weren't one of, we forgot to take an umbrella well, it wasn't going to rain right <laughs> by the way around here you take an umbrella even when it's not going to rain that's a portable shade right and we're standing out in the sun and oh it's so hot and we'd had a little breeze but it quit and I just I uttered a prayer to God I said Lord please give us a little breeze and just as that breeze started a cloud appeared overhead. God didn't just give us a breeze, folks. He gave us a shade. And it lasted till that last song of that service started. Now God's powerful. God answered prayers. God is mighty. You say, Brother Jim, that's a silly little thing. No, it was important at the time. And I praised God for it. I said, after that happened, I said, Lord, I'm going to talk to, I'm going to tell people about this. I want people to know what you do and how you can answer prayers. Now our text names four things that are small and yet mighty at the same time. That word wise means intelligent. That word wise there, when he says in verse 24, four things which are little upon the earth but they're exceeding wise, it means skillful, it means artful. And the first thing he mentions is the preparation of the ants. The preparation of the ants in verse 25. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. According to Agar in this proverb that he gives, the ants are one of the smallest creatures upon the face of the earth. Ants are unimpressive, aren't they? Well, you know, until we find them in the sugar bowl in the house or we find them in our food. They're really unimpressive. They go about their business. We don't even notice them. And we just ignore the ants, in fact, they're so unimpressive and so commonplace, just by taking a step, we might wipe out a dozen or more of them when we step on them. And though they're not considered very strong, you know that ants have been deemed to be able to lift 20 times their body weight. Now, if that were a human lifting 20 times his body weight, it could be as much as 4,000 pounds. And ants display an industry about them. They don't grow weary. They have prudent foresight. We're going to see about that in just a moment. They have leaderless teamwork. There's not one ant leading. Now there's the queen sitting back in the nest, you know, and they're serving her, but they're just going about their business without one person or one ant leading them. By the way, you remember Aesop's fable about the ant and the grasshopper? The ant worked all summer long, stored up food, and the grasshopper played all summer long. And when winter came, the ants had food and the grasshopper didn't. But there's something better than Aesop's fable. You remember what that is? Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, 
provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. God said in the book of Proverbs, he said, go study the ants. Think about the ants. Don't overlook them. Don't bypass them. Don't ignore them. Think about the ants. They not only survive, but they thrive due to their foresight. You ever try to get rid of ants? One lone ant can't accomplish very much, can he? He might carry a crumb of food, maybe a few pieces of grains of dirt, but he can't create a vast community underground by himself, can he? But what happens when, I don't know how many are in a ant mound, thousands, maybe millions of ants get together and they start working, they create this fantastic underground community. If you've ever seen sketches or cutaways of where there have been ant beds, they design them even so when it rains and the water runs down in the ground, it runs into different tunnels and keeps it away from where the queen is. Ants are fantastic creatures and they're experts at teamwork. Have you ever watched ants when maybe you disturb their, especially a fire ant mound or something like that, and they all start working, but then it looks like some of them will come together and it looks like they're talking to one another, communicating with one another. Again, they're just fantastic creatures. They not only rush out to repair the damage that has been done to their mound, but again, they even stop and seem to communicate with each other. That kind of communication is needed among God's people, by the way, folks. But here's a lesson I want us to learn from ants. Ants have the God-given sense to work while they can work. To work during the summertime and to prepare for a time when they cannot work. Ants right now are preparing for winter. They're getting ready for winter. They're storing up. We don't notice them because they're just ants. We're up here and they're down there and we just walk by and don't even see them working but study the ants sometimes. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 9 and verse 4? He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. He said, the night cometh when no man can work. We as God's people keep waiting for things to get better and then I'll serve God. Or we keep putting off this is not my message on procrastination still. But we keep putting off serving God and working for God and we're waiting for the right time. No, God says now's the time. Listen, when Jesus comes back, there's not going to be anybody left here to witness to the lost. Amen. If you have a lost friend or family member or neighbor, co-worker, whatever it may be, there's not going to be anybody here to tell them how to be saved. And in fact, they're going to suffer that time of great tribulation upon this earth. So now's the time. If you know somebody that's lost, if you know a child of God who's unfaithful to God, now's the time for them to get back right with God because one day they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In our day of round-the-clock 24-7 industries, we've lost the idea of daytime is the time for work and nighttime is the time that you don't work. Someone said, well, the ants teach us to prepare for retirement. I tell you what, the ants teach us to prepare for something else. And that is to prepare for the coming eternity. In the book of Amos, Amos said, God through Amos said, prepare to meet thy God. One of these days you realize each and every one of us is going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive things done in his body according that he hath done whether it be good or bad. 
First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The daytime is the time to work. We're living in the day right now. The time is coming when we can't work, when we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. We're going to give answer for our lives, and if we're going to store up any rewards in heaven, it has to be done right now while we're walking upon this earth. We need to be laying up treasures, and we need to be working for the Lord now. So he says, consider the ends. But you look at verse 26. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet they make their houses in the rocks. Well, what, first of all, is a coney? The Hebrew word is actually shephan or shephanim. It was a species, some say, of a rock rabbit, rock badgers, animals about the size of rabbits but with smaller ears and shorter legs like guinea pigs. So you get an idea of this little creature. And in reading about them, it said they're fast, but they can't maintain their speed for a long period of time. And so they can be run down easily by a predator. And so they're vulnerable to attacks from snakes and eagles and vultures and other things like that. Well, how do they manage to survive with so many enemies? Because they know where to go when danger threatens. Hint, hint, okay? They make their homes, it says, in the cliffs of the rocks. A lot of times alongside a steep cliff. And then when one of these predators appears, they can just run into the cliff. The ragged crags are a perfect hiding place for them. If an eagle swoops down to capture one of them, they can run into the cliffs and they can hide there in the cliffs. When a predator is on the prowl, they can do the same thing. And they'll oftentimes go undetected by the predator, many times because the color of their fur matches that of the rocks. So they just blend in. And as long as a coney hides in the rocks, he's safe. But when that coney gets out of the rocks and wanders into the grassland, he's dead meat. He can't outrun his enemy, and he'll be caught. But you see, the coney is wise enough to know that. The coney is wise enough to know that I need to stay in the rocks so he makes wise choices so he can escape when attacked by the enemy. You say, what does that mean to us? What can we learn from the coney? Listen, we have many enemies. We face many dangers on a daily basis. We face disease. We face death. We face so many toils and snares. The song Rock of Ages says, through many toils and snares I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Or if we only had a place of protection like the coney, right? If we just had some some rocks. Or if we just had one rock, guess what? <laughs> we do. And that rock is Jesus. Right? Amen. That's the good news. The Lord God himself is our rock in which we can hide. Trusting Jesus does not exempt us from trouble in life, folks. But it gives us protection and protection for our souls when we do have trouble in life. Remember, the coney stays close to the rocks. So if the predator comes in, he can go immediately to the rocks. Well, we need to stay close to our rock. We need to stay close to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the coney, 
we're weak and defenseless. How can we battle the world and what's going on in the world? But we're safe when we hide in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not bad to be weak. Not if you're smart enough to take refuge in the rock. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, you know what David cried out? David said, the Lord is my fortress. That needs to be our motto. The Lord is my fortress. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In Psalm 40, the first four verses, listen to what David said. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Get this in verse 2. Listen to the verbs. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. He brought me up, he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings, okay? And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. The Lord brought me up, he set me on a rock, he established my goings, and he gave me a song. He gave me a breeze and a cloud yesterday, and I'm ready to sing about it, right? And listen to what else he said. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man that maketh the Lord his trust. So David said, look what God did, and God put it in me to sing about it. You know why many aren't trusting in the Lord today? We've lost our song, and we're not singing our song. How many of us would go out into the world and meet a, just a total stranger and say, let me tell you what God has done for me? We're afraid to. There's something about that or along that line in the bulletin article this morning. A lot of times we don't want to speak up. We don't want to speak out. Why? We're afraid to. We might be ridiculed. Somebody might laugh at us. Somebody might make fun of us. That's really going to hurt, isn't it? You know, maybe when I was... Oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> Maybe when I was in elementary school, somebody made fun of me. That hurt my feelings. Maybe in junior high. But if you'll pardon the way I say it, I'm a grown-up adult right now. Amen. And I'm serving the Lord. Anybody attacks me verbally or physically, they're not attacking me. They're attacking the Lord. Amen. You don't attack God and get away with it, Okay. We need to sing our song, folks. We need to be vocal about what God has done for us. Many of our problems arise because we're not fully trusting him and therefore we don't have a song to sing because we haven't trusted God. We need a praise song to God in our mouths on a daily basis. You know, just when you get up in the morning, there's a reason to praise God. You brought me through the night. You go through the day. Listen, if you look hard enough, you can find... In fact, I think I put this on my Facebook page maybe last night or today. You can find reasons to praise God in everyday life. There's testimonies of his presence in everyday life, in everything that we do. And we ought to be willing to praise God. You have nothing to fear if you take refuge in the rock of ages. You know, I thought about that song in times like these. It's a beautiful song. In times like these, you need a Savior. Boy, we need a Savior today. In times like these, you need an anchor. And how we need an anchor, God's people and the Lord's churches need an anchor today. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. 
Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips a solid rock. Folks, just like the conies, we need to run to the rock today and we need to find our security and our safety and our service and our praise of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how great God is. You know what it makes you want to do? It makes you want to go, woo! <laughs> That's from Brother Truman since he's not here today. It's what it makes you want to do. Well, then you look in verse 27, he talks about the locusts. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them, by bands. Bands talks about ranks. Here's a picture of military precision, even without a leader. Even without a leader, locusts can fly by the billions in order across an area. And they don't get out of their place. They're small creatures. And we, just like an ant, we think of a locust as rather insignificant. Can't accomplish much by just one. But what happens when all these locusts join together and when these insignificant little locusts work together as one? They can strip an area of its vegetation in just a very short time. And locusts don't fly very far above the ground is what I read at one point. But they each keep their appointed places. They have a place and they stay in it. In flight, there won't even be a hair's breadth between them. But they don't get out of place. One swarm was spotted as far as 1,200 miles out to sea, flying northward, going to wherever they were going. Another swarm covered more than 40 square miles of airspace, flying together as a united group. Now, this verse didn't talk about the devastating power of locusts. You know what this verse is talking about? Their unity. Their unity. They work together as one. The order and the simultaneousness of their movements are incredible. And they can just come in and hit a place and be gone. They move like an army under the strictest discipline. They don't have a king. You know, the bees have a queen and geese sometimes, especially Canadian geese, have a leader that they follow. These don't have a king. They just go out in ranks and they go out in order as if they're under a general and they go wherever they need to go or decide to go. You know that the Lord's churches today could make far greater advances for Christ if we'd just work together and if we'd pray together. And I'm thankful that we do here. And if we'd love one another as we should, then we could ever do as individual believers. You know, one person may not be able to do a lot. One person may not be able to witness to many people in a day or a month or a year or a lifetime. But a church of people committed to God can do great things. You know what Ecclesiastes 4.12 says? A threefold cord is not easily broken. And when you're bound together, and I believe we are in this church, you're bound together in the Lord. Not in individual wills, not in individual desires, but we're bound together in the Lord, folks. We can accomplish great things. That's one of the reasons Paul told that church at Philippi to be like-minded, having the same love being of one accord and of one mind. That's why he told that church at Philippi, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. There are no big eyes, but there's a bunch of little, there's a little you in church, isn't it? 
I started saying there's a bunch of them. Well, if you misspell it, I guess there'd be a bunch of little U's in church. But there's no big I in church, but there's a little U, and it's right in the center. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And then he said to the church at Colossae, also put all these, anger, wrath, malice. Not getting angry with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in Ephesians 4, he said we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Look at the locusts. Look at them flying in unity. Look at them flying in precision as if they had a general. There's an example for each and every New Testament church. We must be a unified body if we want to serve the Lord faithfully. And then lastly, he says, talks about the presence of spiders. There's the precision of the locusts. There's the protection of the conies. There's the presence of the spiders. He says in verse 28, The spider taketh hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. Well, what are you talking about, Agur, as you give us this proverb? Now, let me just point out that some commentators use the word spider and some use the word lizard. Some think the word means lizard. And so they use that. The Hebrew word is shemamith. And according to Strong's concordance, it means to stun or to stupefy in the sense of poisoning. And so it's from the superstition of its noxiousness. Now, they say whether it's spiders or lizards, they say can be found in king's palace. And some indicate that whether it's spiders or lizards, it can be actually caught in your hand. Listen, whether it's a spider or a lizard, I don't want it in my hand. Okay. <laughs> All right. At our house, we have some little lizards about that long, and they're tan. And you'll raise the garage door, and one of them will run in right quick. If you ever hear about a crazy preacher chasing something, it's probably me trying to chase a lizard out of the house or out of the garage. But whether it's a spider or a lizard, it can go where it wants to go. And we are really helpless to stop it. Now what Agor is talking about, the creatures he's talking about, he says, are wiser than humans because they have the capacity to gain entrance into places like palaces, which we don't have. They can scale the highest walls. You ever wake up in the middle of the night and see a spider on your ceiling? Or in the morning and see a spider on your ceiling? How'd he get there? He went up the wall. They can evade the best defenses. You can think our house is secure, it's sound, it's tight, and then you'll find a spider in it. You may even find a lizard in it. How'd it get there? It found its way in. Where we might be hesitant to go, the Shimamith shows up and makes himself comfortable. So how does that apply to us? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And we always, I've been taught, you've probably been taught that that phrase or that word Samaria talks about the places we don't want to go. See, the Jews didn't want to go into Samaria. In their thinking, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were part Assyrian and part Jew. And so they didn't want to go. They would avoid Samaria at all costs. So it refers to places that we really don't care to go. Let me ask you this. Is there anywhere you would rather not carry the gospel? Maybe to the homeless camp. Maybe to just some homeless person outside some business or somewhere. 
Is there somewhere that you'd rather not carry the gospel? Is it because of fear? Or is it because of prejudice? See, we have to be careful about those things. Paul apparently took the gospel all the way into Caesar's household. Paul was sort of like a spider, wasn't he? He got in the king's palace. And he took the gospel into Caesar's household. He says in Philippians 4 verse 22, All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are Caesar's household. The Shema myth, this little spider or lizard or whatever he may be, is neither afraid nor does he care whose house he's in. He doesn't matter whether he's a prince or a pauper. He'll go anywhere. And he can get in anywhere. See, here's the lesson. We need to be like this little creature. We need to go anywhere. And we need to go everywhere that God would have us to go with the gospel. Talk to anybody who will hear us. Let God send us with a willingness to obey God in faithfulness and in strength. This little spider, this little shimmermith is willing to go anywhere. Do you think you have some limitation that would hold you back from witnessing to anybody? Witnessing to everybody? Let me tell you this. Give it to God. Years ago, we were in Knoxville or Nashville or I'm not sure. I think it was Knoxville and they had cable cars. And this young man got on the cable car and he had been drinking a little bit. But for some reason, he engaged me in a conversation. His name was Anthony. I remember him today. I didn't know much about Anthony, but I talked to him and I witnessed to him and told him how to be saved. Eventually, either Anthony or I, I don't recall, got off the cable car. And I don't know what has ever happened. I pray to God that Anthony accepted Christ as Savior. But see, it's just that easy. This person that I didn't know started talking to me and I started talking to him and God opened up an opportunity to tell him about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you use the resources and the abilities God has given you, if this church will use the resources and the abilities that God has given us, folks, there's absolutely no limit to what we can do for the Lord. I know we look around us this morning, we have so many out of town, we have so many that are traveling, and we look so small today. But guess what? If this was all we had, God could do mighty things with this group right here. Just add all those others in and see how much better it gets. You know how we're limited? We are limited only by our perception of our inabilities. And that's because we forget who God is and what God's ability is. See, we think, well, I can't. My mother used to say, can't, never could do nothing, right? As long as we think we can't, we can't. If we think we can't as a church, if we think we can't as individuals, we can't. But if we understand Maybe I can't do it, but God through me and God in me can. God can use us in great ways. Jesus said, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. So he's promised the power, 
And he's promised the ability. We have the authority and we have the ability. That word power means dynamic ability. He's promised us the ability. And back in Matthew 28, as a church, he gave us the authority. And guess what? He's going to be with us when we go into all the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we willing to learn these lessons from God's word about ants? Ants who just prepare when there's time to prepare. And teamwork that makes up for lack of strength. Maybe we get to thinking, I can't. You know what we need? We need brothers and sisters in Christ who will lift us up with words of encouragement and with prayer. What about the Coney who teaches us to know where our refuge is, know who our refuge is, and to stay close to that refuge because otherwise we become a meal for the enemy. The locust who teaches us the power of being in unity and teaches us the power of working together for the Lord and doing his will. And then the Shemamith, spider or lizard, I don't care, teaches us not to let our size, our limitations hold us back because we can go anywhere God wants us to go. We can do anything God wants us to do and we are to use the abilities that we have in his service. God provides for and God protects the most humble of his creatures as they do the work that he's given them to do. And he'll do the same for us. He'll certainly provide for and he'll protect his people as we try to live our lives for him and as we try to serve him. There's a little poem I learned years ago that I think applies here. And it goes this way. I can't. You never said I could. But you can, talking to God. And you always said you would. Folks, God wants to use us. I believe God wants to use Bethel in a great way. You know, there are a lot of churches that are turning away from the truth, that are abandoning the truth. Why? Because you can get more folks in, you know, if you don't stand firm for the truth. You can get more folks to come and be a part of your group. We're here to serve God. We're here not just to grow, but we're here to grow for him. Will Bethel ever be a big church? I don't know. I have no idea. It, that's up to God. The Lord adds to the church daily, such as should be saved. But see, if we're not out there witnessing to them, they're not going to be saved. Oh, they can watch the live stream. And by the way, since I haven't mentioned it, and if you are watching the live stream, because I believe everybody I'm talking to this morning knows Christ as Savior. But if you have never turned to God in repentance and by faith applied the shed blood of Jesus to your soul, you're lost and you need to be saved because if you don't do that, one of these days you're going to die and open your eyes in hell. Or the Lord's going to come back and take us who are saved out and going to leave you behind. You say, that's sort of plain. Yeah, it is. Think about these four creatures that God has created and that God enables, and then say, Lord, I want to be like them, and let you use me and put me where you want me. 